What does Opportunity Zone deal flow actually look like at the deal level, fund level, and investor level? And which Opportunity Zones are seeing the greatest amount of deal flow? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. It's Jimmy Atkinson back with another episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Today I'm speaking with Craig Bernstein, principal at OPZ Bernstein, which recently launched the OPZ Bernstein Opportunity Zone Fund. Craig has over 20 years of real estate experience, and the Bernstein Companies is a third-generation real estate developer that has been in the business for over 85 years. Craig is one of the leaders in the Opportunity Zones industry. He has contributed to stories in the New York Times, Associated Press, and CNBC, And if you've ever been to an Opportunity Zone conference, there's a very good chance that you've heard him speak. I met him for the first time at the Opportunity Zone Expo in Los Angeles just last month, and today he joins us from his office in Washington, D.C. Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate it, and uh, pleasure to be here with you today. Absolutely. We're happy to have you on. Uh, So, Craig, you're in D.C., and I know you have a lot of contacts on Capitol Hill So what have you been hearing, and when do you think we'll get the next round of regulations from the IRS? Sure. So uh, I think our conversation is very timely. Um, Right now, the the next set of regulations will most likely be out by the end of this month, and there's actually a public hearing scheduled for February 14th to address in a public setting the first set of regulations that were released at the end of October. Good. And that, that hearing was originally delayed because of the shutdown. Is that right? Correct. And um, my understanding is, and all the feedback that we've been hearing here in Washington is, expect to see something. The government obviously opened up a few days ago and expect to see the second set of regulations um, approximately four weeks after the government opened, which should lead us to to believe that it will be most likely um, right at the end of February into the first week of March. Okay. And those won't be the final regulations yet, though, right? How how long until we get the final set of regulations and, and what still needs to happen in that process? Sure, great question. I think actually that the final set of regulations, by the time everything gets kind of run through the the proper regulatory channels here in Washington, probably won't see everything finalized till you know late May to early summer um, at the earliest. I just think when we look back at how long it's taken to get you know this far, the program's already been in existence for. 13 months now at this point, and we still really even had the second set of clarification regulations. So I, I know everyone's anxiously waiting, as we are, to find out, you know, what, what the final guidance and regulations are. Uh, but I can't stress enough, too, that, you know, we're still right now, and one thing we've been doing at OPZ Bernstein since we first started working in the Opportunity Zone space was really trying to execute on transactions and hitting the ball kind of right down the middle of the fairway and working within the guise of the current legislation. Good. So, yeah, I know a lot of people are anxiously awaiting these final regs, but some people can't wait or they want to get a fund set up before the regulations go final. What what is your advice to them? What should they what should they do? 
Absolutely. I mean, we we executed on our first Opportunity Zone transaction um, in the middle of January, and we're currently underwriting and funding several other deals and should have some other uh, additional announcements about closings in the near future. Um, Right now, you can execute upon... um, the government would like you to, and you can execute a transaction. Again, I think the big thing is, what are the issues that you're still waiting on as an individual investor or fund manager? Depending on what your situation is with a specific investment, each individual investor, fund advisor, or developer has their own set of circumstances that's specific to their own unique project. So I really think it's more of a case-by-case basis, but everything as I kind of iterated a few minutes ago is we're trying to execute and hit the ball down the middle of the fairway. Um, and we, the big thing for us, and I think we're going to get into it and then hopefully in a few minutes about the regulations, the big thing for us that we're really waiting for guidance on is refinance proceeds. And um, sitting here now at the beginning of February, I think within the next two to three weeks, we'll have a much better understanding of where that stands. Yeah, I'll ask you about that in a minute. Um, I want to get into a lot of the regulatory issues that are still outstanding. But first, I want to want to back up for a minute, Craig, and talk about you for a second. Uh, can you give me a little bit of your background? How did you get your start in real estate? And basically, how did you get to where you are today? And what differentiates you from everyone else? Good question. Um, I started out actually in real estate brokerage. Um, I was at Cushman and Wakefield the first half of my career. I was in brokerage for about nine years. And for the past 11 years, I was running a prominent family office called White Star Investments in Bethesda, Maryland. I started out initially as the family's director of real estate, built out a direct real estate portfolio on behalf of the Bajaj family. And then about um, three years into my role, I became the family's chief investment officer. Uh, about 18 months ago, I became aware of the Opportunity Zone legislation, and I was really intrigued by it, by the potential benefits, not only from being able to deliver investors with compelling risk-adjusted returns in a tax-efficient manner, but also being able to positively impact thousands of lives across America, implementing some of the um, social benefits as well. So that really is kind of how I got my start in real estate. And the big catalyst for me was not in the past 40 years have we seen a piece of legislation that is going to have as much impact as the Opportunity Zone legislation is on the real estate industry. 1031 exchanges were first passed and created in 1979, and this legislation really has the ability to transform the way that communities, investors, and developers look and think about real estate. Good. And and to you specifically, what differentiates you from from everyone else in, in the industry? So what we're doing, um, as you kind of mentioned to and alluded to, I started the business out initially as OPZ Capital last year. About a month ago, I executed a joint venture transaction with the Bernstein Companies, a Washington, D.C.-based, fully integrated real estate investment management firm. The firm has an 85-year history. They've owned, managed, and developed over 5 million square feet of commercial space, 4,000 apartments, and 20 hotels across the country. The one thing that really differentiates us is, as a company, they've done over a billion and a half dollars in new market tax credit transactions in 38 states um, across a, a total of 150 transactions. So when I started to, to speak with different operators to potentially team up with, no one had the depth, breadth, and scale um, that the Bernstein companies does from kind of an infrastructure perspective. And that's really what kind of led me to, uh, to try to proceed with them uh, and team up and do a joint venture. Very good. And you share a last name, but there's no relation there. Is that correct? 
there is no relationship. Um, I'm, I'm a third generation Washingtonian, as Adam Bernstein is as well, but no relationship. Good, good. Uh, I want to get back into discussing the regulatory issues. I know you have identified the five most important regulatory issues that are still outstanding. Could you briefly list them for our listeners and then maybe go into each one specifically? Everyone, depending on who you ask, you can ask five different people and get five different answers. And that's the one thing that's interesting about the program. It really depends on who you're talking to and what lens they're looking at the individual issues through. As I see it, as an Opportunity Zone fund manager funding best-in-class operators across the country by providing basically a cheaper source of capital, the main issues that are keeping me up at night are for structuring the exit. How are we going to structure this exit? Is it going to be a single asset fund, multi-asset fund, reach structure? Second is refinance proceeds. How are these refinancing proceeds? We all have a clear understanding now that you will be able to utilize debt. That was clarified in the first set of regulations. But how is that debt going to be classified? Is it going to be ordinary debt as we would know it from a regular real estate deal? Is it going to be return of principal? which would potentially taint the initial equity contribution within our Opportunity Zone Fund wrapper, or is it going to be classified as ordinary income, which would be subject to federal and state taxes? That, to me, is really kind of the biggest issue. The next issue is how is land going to be treated? Fourth issue is depreciation or capture. Fifth is general partnership promote. And last but not least is private equity transactions. For every question we have about real estate, there are 10 about the private equity world. Right. You actually gave me six there, I think, if I if I counted right. Yeah, the, the sixth one being really the, the kind of private equity transaction. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on there. Um, I yeah, I, when I first read about the potential to eliminate depreciation recapture, I thought that was a huge benefit of the program, being able to eliminate the FF and E recapture. Do you? But it seems like nobody can really agree on on what the intent of the the legislation is or the regulations are. Can, can you speculate on, on what the final ruling on that's going to be? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I, I raised this issue with, um, with the administration about a year ago, and at the time they were, really weren't even aware of it. And um, I was fortunate enough to meet with the author of the bill on Capitol Hill um, right when the legislation was first passed. And to put it in context, the last major piece of legislation he worked on was the Health Care Act. So I think what we saw is the whole tax bill, the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which basically um, enacted Section 1400Z, which is the Opportunity Zone provisions, was only five pages. So the whole bill in a PDF form is 185 pages, page 130 to 135, specifically relates to Opportunity Zones. So the way that the law was written, just so the, the listeners have a clear sense of this, is it says basically upon exit of selling your interest in the Qualified Opportunity Zone Fund at time of sale, your basis is automatically stepped up to the sale price, which would then imply that there's no recapture. Just so everyone uh, understands, and I know that we've got a variety of listeners um, today, the there are two types of recapture. There's short-term and long-term. Short-term being what you mentioned is kind of that FF&E and, e, and then kind of 1251 recapture. And then the longer-term traditional depreciation, as an example, 39 years on a multifamily building. Everyone that I'm talking to seems to agree and think that the long-term recapture will be an acceptable form with no recapture at the time of sale. The bigger question really is short-term um, recapture kind of for that FF&E. So 
how I think it's going to shake out, I do believe that you definitely will get kind of a, a pass on the long-term depreciation, meaning that you will be able to take that depreciation with no recapture. The bigger question for me is on that shorter-term recapture, which is the accelerated, basically, um, in a real estate transaction for um, an elevator or HVAC units, any kind of tenant improvements that we might have in a building that might uh, traditionally be classified as short-life items. Um, and it's it's ironic because typically we try to, in a regular traditional real estate transaction, jam as much money as we can into their short-term deductions versus long-term because you're able to accelerate it faster and get the benefit. And, and unfortunately, in this program, I think it might be the exact opposite. We're going to find people trying to take advantage of the long-term um, recapture and not put as much into that short-term bucket. Right, that makes sense because if if, they, if they're able to completely eliminate the depreciation recapture on the long term, then that absolutely makes sense. Are there any other of those regulatory issues that you want to speculate on uh, as to what the final ruling will be? Yeah, it, it's hard. I think as we said today, and um, you and I have talked about it last week when we ran into each other in L.A., the big thing is, you know, it, it's a waiting game. So I think, you know, if I were speculating, it'd be just that, a speculation. And uh, I'd rather I'd rather wait before I pine on any further issues. But those are the biggest issues right now. And what I'm kind of looking forward to here really is on the refinancing proceeds, any additional information as it relates to structuring the exit, and last but not least, the depreciation or capture. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely a wait-and-see game at this point. I want to talk with you now about the opportunity zones themselves. So there are over 8,700 opportunity zones. Uh, Could you give me some data or some background on these zones, and in which zones are you seeing the greatest amount of deal flow? Yep. Uh, good question and interesting. And I think as time progresses, we're getting a better sense from kind of a, a micro analysis of where deals are being done, where we're seeing transactions, and where you're going to see the dollars flow into this. As you just mentioned, there are over 8,700 zones across America. That's really, I think it's about 11% of the United States is in a zone. 31 million Americans live in within these zones, approximately 1.5 million businesses. And the breakdown between urban, suburban, and rural is pretty close. Approximately 40%, 38% to be exact of the zones are urban. 22% are suburban, and 40, 40% are rural. I don't think it's any surprise, but the areas where we're seeing the most amount of interest are the most densely populated, larger kind of metropolitan areas. So we've seen a great deal of um, deal flow in New York, Los Angeles, South Florida, and uh, and Houston, to name a few. Um, where we're particularly excited about is kind of the, the higher end, and we've done a great deal of quantitative analysis on the market, looking at a variety of factors. Um, I think it's going to be very hard, and we're very strategic in terms of um, – how we're trying to, to think about the process and moving forward. Um, the areas that we're very excited about are um, higher-powered uh, tertiary markets, so uh, Nashville, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Austin, Texas, uh, Colorado Springs, Portland, Oregon, uh, Columbus, Ohio. I think you're going to see a tremendous amount of interest and activity go to some of these, um, what some people might consider to be tertiary markets, but I actually think that that's where um, the greatest amount of opportunity lies and also the ability for us to provide compelling risk-adjusted returns to our investors. And why is that, that, that you're focusing on those secondary and tertiary markets as opposed to primary markets? 
Good question. The, the biggest thing really is supply. Um, I think when you look at the supply-demand dynamics in these major markets, that my primary focus is I'm a fiduciary. And at the end of the day, we're a wealth management solution focused first and foremost on capital preservation with providing steady um, recurring uh, income stream and then providing, hopefully providing tax-free capital uh, appreciation. So when we look at these markets, we're looking at it from an investor wearing an investor hat saying, where can we get the best bang for our buck? And we truly believe that these secondary markets are going to deliver the best risk-adjusted returns for our investors. So can we talk a little bit now about deal flow? Can you tell me and and my listeners about some of the conversations you've been having with real estate developers? What are these deals looking like? And I mean, what are they looking like at the deal level? What are they looking like at the fund level? And what are they looking like at the investor level? Absolutely. I mean, we've been having um, conversations on a daily basis with a variety of um, developers, and it, it really runs the gamut. There's some smaller people that are looking for, you know, people that traditionally do one or two million dollar deals, all the way up to institutional type of developers that are doing, you know, two, three, four hundred million dollar projects. Um, today, we've looked at well over two hundred opportunity zone fund investments, and um, as a total, it's now well north of five billion dollars. I haven't added up on my spreadsheet, but if I had to take a guess, they're probably closer to $7 billion at this point. Um, the deals that we're seeing, and, and it's a great question. I mean, the biggest thing is, and I know and I would assume that a majority of your listeners are developers. At the end of the day, what this program is going to allow is for us to provide a cheaper source of capital. So our whole business plan is we are providing capital at kind of 150 to 250 basis points cheaper than a traditional um, source of equity. So to answer your question about um, where we're seeing things at both the deal level, fund level, and investor level, let's first start with the deal level. A majority of deals that we're seeing, and again, these are deals that I'm looking at and closely underwriting, at the deal level, we're seeing kind of returns in the 15 to 18% IRR range. These have traditional leverage, you know, call it 65 to 75%, again, 10-year hold periods, and then the yield on cost, I mean, for it to even qualify and make it past kind of our, our first blush review, we've got to be 150 to 250 bips over current cap rates. If not, I could make the argument and say, why wouldn't I just buy an existing product type? I need to be rewarded at this point in time, late in the cycle, um, for the risk, obviously, of, of, of potential um, rising interest rates and uh, capital rate, cap rates that could potentially rise. So at the deal level, again, 150 to 250 bips uh, over current cap rates. At the fund level, moving down to the next tier, once we get the developer paid out, um, what we're seeing for our first waterfall when we're providing the equity is really an 8 to 10 press versus traditional equity now in the market between 10 and 13%. We're seeing um, splits anywhere in terms of um, we're obviously coming in as the LP equity, but the developer being the GP of that quote-unquote, fund at the development level, anywhere from 70% all the way up to 90%. So we're, we're seeing deals um, between the developer and OPZ Bernstein of a 70-30 split all the way up to 90-10 on the equity. Uh, and again, the first waterfall at kind of in that 8 to 10%, and then working our way up there. At the investor level, a majority of the, the um, investors that we're speaking with are kind of ultra-high net worth investors. They're really looking for, again, Focus on capital preservation, secondary risk on your kind of focus um, on appreciation, 
But first and foremost, they want to ensure that their capital is protected for the long term. So we are trading location and working with best-in-class operators for some of that higher upside of maybe going to a deeper tertiary market. We're willing to, to give up some upside to be in more of a stable market with a great operating partner. At the investor level, at the end of the day, we're seeing IRRs between 9 and 12%, with a current ongoing yield upon stabilization of 4 to 6% at the investor level. Good. Thank you for all that, that level of detail. That's, that's great to see to see what deals look like at all those different levels, those different layers. Can we shift gears a little bit now and discuss the universe of Opportunity Zone funds? I, I have a database that lists a lot of them uh, on my website at the Opportunity Zones database, but I wanted to get some some data from you now. How many are there and how much money are they all looking to raise? Well, it, it really depends. And I think right now, since the industry is so new, um, how many people are you, are you tracking now? And, and as an example, how many people are you currently tracking in your database? I, in my database now, um, well, at, by the time this airs, I'll have over 100 funds in there. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably accurate. I mean, I've, I've seen numbers up to 100 and anything kind of in between 75 to 100. So um, my understanding right now of, of adding everything up, there's about 18 to $19 billion that people are saying that they want to raise. From a reality perspective, I think the opportunity set is much larger. And the numbers that the Treasury has indicated is you will see $100 billion flow into the space. I uh, I was um, there was an article that came out the other day called um, OZ Overload that's going to appear in this month's Real Deal magazine, and I stated in the article, and I think this is no different than any other industry, but at the end of the day, you're going to see 10% of the managers with 90% of the capital. A majority of the funds that are currently out there really are ranging from looking to raise um, as little as five million dollars all the way up to three billion dollars. Some of those, well, actually now I guess CIMs looking to raise five billion. But when you look at some of the larger funds, and I think that um, Anthony Scaramucci, Skybridge, kind of EJF is a perfect example. The big thing, and, and you asked at the top of the show, what really differentiates us is, is our experience. We're seeing a, a, a large number of firms, great operators in their respective business, but people that just say, oh, my God, this is a, a great opportunity. I, I should be raising an opportunity zone fund. And what I mean by that is I think EJS is a, is a perfect example. They, um, they've been having a little bit of difficult time, and I think that that's been now widely covered in the press, meeting with people because they really have been focused on the bond space and, and debt space as it relates to real estate versus physically um, operating in the space. The other thing is you're seeing a lot of wealth management professionals getting into the space. So they're going out, hiring two or three people, and then just creating their own internal branded Opportunity Zone Fund. Um, the Bernstein Companies has over 200 employees, and we've got 12 people right now working full-time, both on underwriting, structure, and on um, investor relations. So I think you know the groups that you see that will succeed are going to be real estate-focused groups. Starwood just announced the fund last week. I think that's an excellent example. Same with CIM and RXR. These are um, three operators that are you know well-known, established brands. And at the end of the day, I think those are going to be the groups that are going to be successful um, in this new and exciting universe. Yeah, experience is key when it comes to real estate investing, especially since this is a new program and a lot of interested parties have a lot of questions beyond just real estate developers, but who have been the best-in-class leaders when it comes to education about this program? Who are some of the leading operators? 
Yeah, I mean, one thing, and I can't stress it enough, the first and foremost is, at the end of the day, this is a real estate deal. And we just touched on it with at the fund level of who are the operators, who are we seeing, who's getting the capital, who's getting good looks at the deal flow. At the end of the day, what this is going to come down to is identifying the best deals. Under no circumstances can you let the tail wag the dog. A crappy real estate deal is a crappy real estate deal. If someone's selling their Apple stock and we're able to get them uh, the deferral of taxes for, you know, till December 26, a 15% step up in basis equal to their initial gain, okay, but then put them into a, a, a subpar real estate transaction, we're doing nobody any favors. So, you know, I can't stress enough, I mean, as we talk about the funds is stay focused, it's a real estate deal, and you want to make sure you do a good transaction. Answering question about who are some of the, the kind of players that are in the space, one thing I always say, and, and we've you know seen each other at a few events now, and um, you, you've heard me speak, is I really stress the education and trying to link up with best-in-class consultants. And what I mean by that is you have to talk with if you're a lawyer, there's a lot of people I'm talking to that say, Craig, I've had my lawyer for 20 years. He's the greatest guy. I'm sure he's wonderful. But if he hasn't dug deep into this and coordinated and triangulated information between other players in the space, he's operating in a vacuum right now. And a majority of the law firms aren't open. They're working in a closed vacuum. They're not sharing their thought process and the work that they've completed to date with their competitors. So I would highly recommend, I mean, the groups that we're seeing that are very active on the legal side of the equation is Duval and Stackenfeld, New York. Jessica Malay has been very active. She's the head of the tax program there. Olivia Byrne at K&L Gates. Uh, Olivia is based in Washington, D.C. Unbelievable. Um, Ron Fieldstone. Ron is uh, an attorney, a partner at Saul Ewing based out of Miami. And Daniel Cullen at Baker McKinsey. This is just an example, and I'm not saying that they're the end-all, be-all, but that's, what, four or five people that have been really active in this space. On the accounting side of the equation, you're seeing um, teams now, and both this is, applies for law firms and accounting firms, both establishing dedicated groups focus exclusively on opportunity zones. So KPMG is an example. Um, Richard Blumenreich. Joe Scalio, uh, Ruth Tang, Phil Mara. These are people, as an example, at KPMG that are leading their uh, efforts, and they're all experts in the field. EY, Tony Brown, who works in McLean, Virginia, excellent. Cone Resnick, uh, Tim Trefilio, who's in Bethesda, Maryland, phenomenal. Novogratic, uh, Mike Novogratic, who's based out in California in San Francisco, a leader in the new market tax credit space and is in very involved in the Opportunity Zone space. I can't stress it enough. Team up with one of these excellent providers. Do not try to cut corners and try to educate yourself and learn as much as possible about the entire process. Yeah, Novogratic in particular, for me personally at least, is is where I started learning a lot about this program when I when I first became aware of it. They have a they have a lot of great resources on their website. Um so I want to talk to you about what you said earlier that this is a real estate program. And most of these funds have been have been real estate deals so far. But what about private equity investing? I know you mentioned that that was one of the one of the key issues that's still outstanding in the IRS regulations for venture startups and operating businesses located in opportunity zones. The eligibility is unclear. What what are you expecting the IRS to do to determine eligibility? Great, great question. And um, I've been. 
speaking with, and a majority of the venture capital and private equity people that are interested on this are based on the West Coast. So a lot of the larger operators, there are some on the East Coast, so I don't want to downplay that. As an example, Steve Case's Revolution has been actively involved with Rise of the Rest, and they are looking at potentially utilizing opportunities and investments within and kind of coupling it with some of their venture capital dollars. Um, and they're also focused on same kind of markets I mentioned in these tertiary markets, trying to identify emerging managers. Right now, the way that the law is written, it states that you have to derive 50% of your revenues from inside of a zone. So what does that mean? If we set up a location in, let's say, um, Nashville, Tennessee, okay, and we would have to, we're, we're setting up as a software company, 50% of our software sales would have to be within the zone. Well, from a practical perspective, if we're a large-scale operator, at the end of the day, there might only be 2 or 3% of our revenues derived from inside of a zone. The feedback that I've received from both the private equity world as well as the administration's been, they are well aware of this issue. And the government's intent is to have the program – the government wants the program to succeed and wants there to be significant uptake and dollars invested in to these communities. That was the goal of the legislation, and they're going to do everything in their power to ensure the program's success. Um, so I think at the end of the day, they're going to probably state that 90 or 95 percent of your revenues need to be can be derived outside of the zone, but 50 percent of your quote unquote net income would be derived inside of their zone. So what does that mean? I think what the government's looking for is they want to make sure that you have your employees, your accounting department, your human resources, your IT department, your fulfillment centers located and physically housed inside of a zone. So I do think that that will get cleaned up, and there's a tremendous amount of opportunity moving forward. The one thing, though, that I don't think can be stressed enough is if it is, in fact, and we're doing, let's just use venture capital as an example, if we're lucky enough to invest in the next kind of unicorn company, whether it's Airbnb, Uber as an example, Lyft, most likely those companies are sold prior to 10 years. So to maximize the the benefits that are afforded to us under the legislation, you'd have to hold that investment for 10 years. And everyone I've talked to, that's been the biggest concern, both from investors as well as fund managers. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting point there. And and just to be clear, we're not we're still not really sure what the IRS is going to rule on. We're we're speculating or making educated guesses at least. Correct, and that's 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 an issue that um, by by no no stretch of the imagination, this is front and center for Treasury. And I think you know it's important to note. I mean, I, I said it before, but for every question we have about real estate, there are ten about private equity. Yeah, absolutely. So I, yeah, it's it's good to hear that Treasury wants this program to succeed, and they're and they're working on on doing so. One potential threat to the program's success actually comes from the states. Uh, not all of the states are conforming with the federal tax incentive. So California might be the most classic example since they have the highest capital gains tax rate in the U.S. at 13.3% in the highest tax bracket. Which states are problematic and, and what are you expecting on the conformity front? I know some states have conformed, but there's others that are are still waffling or haven't decided yet. What are you hearing? And can you just speak to that a little bit? 
Absolutely. I mean, there are just over 35 states now that are currently conforming. And this is one little known fact that really isn't being addressed publicly, or, or I should say widely known. So when, when we're talking to people and we bring this up, they say, well, what are you talking about? They didn't even know it, it is conforming. It's not conforming. It isn't on the radar. You mentioned California, and I think that's a great example. Um, let's just start by saying California, um, I was just told last week um, by the treasurer of California that she's working on regulations right now um, with Governor Newsom to put forward within this year's budget to allow for coupling. And what that would mean, so for all the listeners to have a clear understanding, the state governments and legislatures would follow the same rules and regulations as the federal government. So basically the same benefits would apply at the state level. There's some states that only offer some of the benefits, but there are, like I said, these 35 states that are riding along and conforming for the, with kind of like the whole kit and caboodle for all the benefits. So you mentioned California. That's a perfect example. At a 13.3% net effective tax rate, that's a major headwind. New Jersey is another state, 8.97%. Uh, at the highest bracket. Also, an example like a Wisconsin, 7.65%, Pennsylvania. So the areas right now that we're a little bit kind of skeptical on, um, and again, I'm based more on the East Coast, but California, obviously, um, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, uh, New, New York, I'm sorry, New York does conform. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and California are three states that we're kind of trying to stay away from at this point in time. Until their state assemblies are, are- other state legislative bodies can uh, can pass legislation that allows them to conform. Is that right? But but sometimes that sometimes that's a question mark as to whether or not that'll be achieved. Correct. I mean, as you know, um, we all know what the current environment is, both from a, a legislative and regulatory perspective. Uh, especially some of these states that are having deep, deep, you know budgetary concerns. So I really think it's going to come down to a state-by-state issue. And again, it's such a fluid situation. Every day I'm hearing, you know, different things about each state. Um, That's its own nuance within a program. But that goes back to like a KPMG, like we mentioned before. KPMG spent a great deal of time focused um, on the state side of the equation. Um, And they've got an excellent person working on the state rules. Um, And and again, that's all that she's focused specifically on. Yeah, it's a big topic that definitely doesn't receive enough attention and not, a, not enough uh, people and even experts in the, in the industry are really aware of, of it or educated well on it. So thanks for, thanks for offering some color there on that topic. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's Leanne, Leanne Scott at KPMG. She's based in um, Clayton, Virginia, and she's really been, I mean, one of the only people in the country that's even really, you know, brought this up and she was talking about it in the fall. Good. So she's been on it for a little while. Um, that's good. Now, I, I wanted to talk with you about your company and the Opportunity Zone Fund that you're working on. We discussed a little bit earlier that you recently teamed up with the Bernstein Companies. Again, you have no familial relation with them, just the same last name, coincidentally. And you guys just launched the OPZ Bernstein Opportunity Zone Fund. What is the fund's investment strategy? Where are you guys? I guess you've already spoken a little bit about uh, your strategy into tertiary markets. Um, and how much are you looking to raise? 
Sure, great question. So what we're looking to do, and I, I alluded to it earlier, is we're trying to provide uh, a wealth management management solution for ultra-high net worth individuals by providing investors with a fully diversified portfolio of opportunity zone investments. And this portfolio is going to be diversified both by product type and geographically. We're going to have um, a majority of the portfolio, probably 60% in multifamily, and then kind of round the portfolio out with other product types, um, student housing, office, retail, mixed use, industrial, self-storage, assisted living. And then geographically focused, we're really agnostic on location, but first and foremost, we're not going to have any concentration in one specific city. Um, we're having a very open mind right now. But like I said, we've got our target markets that we're focused on that I alluded to, the, the Nashville, Charleston, um, Colorado Springs, Columbus, Ohio of the world. And we think that those areas are going to be able to deliver to our investors the um, best compelling risk-adjusted returns that the market will bear. How much is your fund seeking to raise? Yeah, we initially set a target of $500 million, but um, we've been very fortunate. Um, We've been working on this for quite some time. I've been in the Opportunity Zone space for almost a year now. And I think at the end of the day, we'll probably be uh, between $700 to $800 million with the total raise. Good. Do you anticipate you may may have additional funds that you'll launch uh, as the years progress? Yeah, I mean, that's something right now we're, uh, we're, we're focused on um, allocating capital that's already been committed to us by our investors. And right now, that's our primary focus. Um, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. What's been the biggest challenge for you? Is it, has it been finding deals or has it been raising the money? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a great deal, as you know, a great deal of excitement um, around the space and the program. The capital is going to be there at the end of the day, but I still believe, and I can't stress that enough, like any business, the top 10% of managers are going to capture 90% of these dollars. At the end of the day, first and foremost, it's a real estate deal. So for us, right now where we stand, the hardest part for us is finding deals that work. And we just have a very, very high bar in terms of allocating capital. And the last thing we want to do is raise more capital than we can successfully deploy. Under no circumstances would we do a bad deal just to get the money out the door. Um, we'd rather, you know, that's part of the reason why we're saying seven to $800 million. Um, just given where we are in terms of, you know, we're looking at 100 deals and executing upon one. So um, we're just very, very patient and trying to be astute and thoughtful about the process of underwriting transactions. That's incredible. You're you're able to be that selective. You must be getting a lot of calls every every week that you have to turn down. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been busy to say the least. And um, you know, as I mentioned, we've got twelve people working on it full time, and I've got a full uh, acquisitions team right now, and uh, have got an incredible team. Very fortunate, um, and, and everyone's excited about our prospects moving forward. But first and foremost, I mean, we want to, you know, we're, we're focused on on executing um, excellent real estate deals. It's what the Bernstein Companies is known for. They've raised four commingled funds historically, run money for J.P. Morgan and Morgan. State. Family. I mean, some of the largest banks in the world. And uh, right now, our primary focus is on, um, on making quality investments for investors. One of the outstanding issues in the final regs is exit strategy. I wanted to ask you, what is your exit strategy for your investors in the Opportunity Zone Fund? Yeah, we're right now, and I don't um, want to talk 
too much about structure because some of it is um, proprietary. But right now, we're we're looking at a, a variety of different structures, and it really is on a case by case basis, depending on who our investors are. Some of our deals that we're currently um, capitalizing are with. Um, single investors, meaning the larger ultra-high net worth investors that are taking the whole deal down, where other deals are, when I say commingled, having multiple investors in a transaction. So it really varies on a case-by-case basis. Um, but in all the deals, all the structures work out and provide us with the flexibility to exit a transaction uh, as we deem fit in year 10. Gotcha. Very good. Near the top of the show, you were talking about how this program attacked attracted your attention in one small part due to the social benefits that it's intending to provide. What is your fund doing to account for positive social impact in the areas where it invests? We are um, making individual investments, the principals here at the firm, uh, into the communities in which we invest in. That's something that we're, we're heavily involved um, philanthropically, and, and we're really excited about um, the opportunity to continue some of the work that we've already started in these areas. Um, so from a fund level, I mean, that's something that we're doing um, to add on to not only the benefit that we're doing by um, allocating capital into these areas, but I think that the social impact piece, you know, we're, we are long-term investors, and we're not looking to flip out of a deal in two, three, or four years. So the dollars that we're doing into these communities, we're being very cognizant and trying to be good stewards of capital to make sure that not only do we have our uh, investors' financial interests at heart, first and foremost, but also making sure that we're using the capital in an efficient manner and trying to do the, um, the greatest amount of good that we can. Um, with each one of these individual investments into these opportunity zones. So a, a big picture question now, as it relates to that, actually, what what is your overall take on the Opportunity Zone program, and do you believe that it will succeed in creating so in creating positive social impact as originally intended? A- absolutely. I mean, investors that I'm talking to that are allocating capital right now into Opportunity Zone deals would not be investing in these areas if there were not the economic benefits associated with the program. So first and foremost, I think the answer is absolutely yes. A lot of these areas are impoverished areas that were left behind in the last economic recovery coming out of the um, recession in 2008 and 2009 that were left behind. So when you look at some of these communities that have a poverty rate in excess of 30%, we're now coming in and able to do a $30, $40, $50 million real estate project in these communities. They bring new jobs along. They provide a safer environment. They provide new playgrounds, um, places, and, and we've got you know rooms that we're doing in some of our multifamily buildings, as an example, of study areas. And that's something, too, when you mentioned like um, on the community aspect, that's an area we're looking at where we have these kind of homework rooms where we can then come in afterwards and then donate computers, as an example, or provide tutoring services within these projects. So those are some of the ideas and um, some of the work that we're doing within, uh, within our portfolio. That's tremendous. Yeah, and I think you're right. These types of capital injections into these communities wouldn't have happened without this program otherwise. So that's, that's great to hear Absolutely. some examples. Uh, well, Craig, we're getting toward the end of our time here today, but I had a couple of retrospective questions for you before we go. I want to know if, uh, if you're willing to share, um, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made along the course of your career or, or biggest lessons that you've learned? 
Um, it's a great question. Nothing's ever perfect, and no deal is ever perfect. Um, the biggest lesson that I've learned so far from this process is how many people, and, and I stressed it, talk to an expert. Make sure you are aware of what you're doing and executing one of these transactions. Once a week, I get someone calling me saying, Craig, I made a mistake. They didn't know to talk to someone. Or I talked to my lawyer. The biggest thing that I would stress about errors is make sure that you're talking to qualified professionals, accountants, lawyers, fund managers, developers, someone like yourself, Jimmy, that is familiar with the space and can point people in the, in the right direction. In terms of me personally, um, the biggest regret I have is not spending more time with my family, which I think all of us wish we could do. It's very hectic. It's exciting times. Um, but that's something I've got two little ones at home and, um, you know, I'm cognizant of it is trying to spend more time with my family. That's one thing. And then the second thing is, um, realizing that it's critical. And I think we're seeing that now with some managers, whoever's executing upon this, if they want to try to do, I spend a lot of time in, kind of the, the first beginning stages of OPZ Capital with the smaller team in place. Up until recently, you know, I just added on to the Bernstein companies and provided me with the necessary infrastructure that's critical to scale the business. For me personally, I wish I would have, um, it wasn't a matter of caving, I was trying to do it on my own, but I wish I would have realized that to be able to fully scale the business, I would have known sooner that to know what I didn't have, which was the necessary resources and infrastructure in place to be able to successfully run two, three, four, five hundred million dollars of capital. Yeah, that's that's some great lessons there. That's that's good advice too. The time is the one truly limited resource. Uh, we all are in the same boat there when it comes to that. If you want to speak to some of your successes now, what's been your most memorable investment, or or maybe most memorable investments that you've that you've been involved with? Is there anything that really stands out? Yeah, I've been I've been fortunate. I've had some some great transactions, and um, one deal that, that took a lot of work, and I think it was really more community related, is um, I did a redevelopment of a shopping center here in the DC metro area. And um, one thing that was challenging was it was in a small community, and um, it was a, a Walgreens anchored shopping center. I had Walgreens, uh, BB and T Bank out there, and it was very difficult. It took a great deal of time, and um, more so dealing with architectural boards, review boards, getting through kind of you know town councils. And um, it was frustrating when I was going through the process, but it was rewarding at the end of the day to finally get it done and to see how happy the community was with the project we did. It was an older shopping center and really redeveloping it. Um, I wish I had another great kind of you know, rah-rah story that it impacted people. But for me, just given the, the, the time and blood, sweat, and tears that went into it, to finally get it over the finish line and, um, and see it be, you know, successful, uh, to me, was probably one of the, the, the highlights of, uh, of my real estate career being involved on the um, equity allocation and the development side of the business. Awesome. Yeah, always good when that deal finally gets across the finish line. I, I think that's, uh, that's for everyone. Absolutely. Well, Craig, where can my listeners go to learn more about you and and your Opportunity Zone Fund? Yeah, absolutely. Um, more than willing to, to speak with anyone, um, any of your listeners that have any questions, don't ever hesitate to give me a call. My email address is C Bernstein, uh, C as in Craig, Bernstein, B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N, at T-B-C-O, 
So that's like the Bernstein companies, dot biz, B-I-Z. So it's cbernstein at P-B-C-O dot biz. And you can find um, the Bernstein companies online at thebernsteincompanies.com. And also I'm, uh, I'm active on LinkedIn to kind of get little tidbits and little articles and stories uh, as we begin this journey um, into this crazy world called Opportunity Zones. That's great. So for my listeners, uh, I'll have links to all of the resources that Craig and I discussed on today's show on my show notes page on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Craig, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate your time, and I hope to see you at an upcoming OZ event soon. Yeah, Jimmy, uh, thank, thank you for your time. It's an honor to be here with you today. And um, you know, thank you for all the work that you're doing. I mean, I think you've done an excellent job so far. And uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, the podcasts have been great. And, uh, you know, we need more people like you spreading the word. And I mean, I think we beat on it pretty good here. I mean, this is new and exciting and everyone's, you know, jazzed up about it. I just want to make sure the pool doesn't get tainted and, uh, you know, that everyone's educated, especially for our investors and the community members to ensure the success of the program. So thank you again for having me and uh, thank you again for all the work you've completed as well. Oh, absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.